0: If you would look at John 12, and we are going to be there uh, reading down, we're going to start in verse number 23 in just a moment, but we have been walking through uh, good portions of the book of John for several different weeks, and uh, if you haven't noticed, typically at the beginning of each sermon, I've been kind of going just a little bit of a recap of where we've been, kind of arching toward uh, where we're going. And so, if you think about, we've we've walked through many different teachings of Jesus. Uh, we've talked about miracles of Jesus. We've seen him heal uh, blind men and feed thousands. We've seen him heal and raise Lazarus from death, and uh, so that had been kind of his crowning miracle up to this point. And we've seen the responses of the people that are around Jesus, and we have seen some people that hear His teaching and from His teaching and the Spirit moving in their hearts that they respond and say, this must be the Messiah. He doesn't speak like any other human being. He must be the Son of God. And we've seen some that watch His miracles and uh, when they see Jesus perform these miracles, (coughs) they say, this is the Son of Man. We think this is the Messiah. And it says that when Lazarus was raised from the dead that some of them believed on Him. We've also seen Uh, a different reaction from other people that uh, some some Pharisees saw him heal a blind man and said, you can't do that on the Sabbath in the way that you did it. And then we see him heal Lazarus and they say, well, if he heals Lazarus, the Romans are going to come and take away because of all the commotion that this is stirring. And it's come to the point where we're at in chapter 12 that people are actually now there's, there's kind of two different sides. People are seeking to make Jesus king. We see that to make him a physical king, not a spiritual king. We've seen that last week as we sort of went through that triumphant entry and they're laying down palm leaves and they're uh, putting their robes and their uh, garments on the ground and letting him kind of uh, come in as a king instead of walking to the Passover feast. He was riding on a donkey. And so there's sort of these physical Things and indicators, and they want to make him their physical king. And then there's others that want to murder Jesus. And so you have these two totally starkly different reactions. You have some that, when they see what Jesus is doing, want to make him a physical king. And then you have others that say, We want to kill him. And Jesus really was not looking for either of those reactions out of his true followers, out of his real disciples. He just wants them to follow him and trust in him spiritually. And so We kind of have come to this point where Jesus is going to make a pivot moment, a pivoting moment in his ministry here on this earth. We've already said we've entered into that last week of his life here on this earth. He is coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. We know that in just a few days, those that said, we want to make him our physical king, when they realize that he's not there to rule physically, they turn on him and they say, we're going to crucify you. We want to see you nailed to the cross. And so that's all coming. And you say, well, if you look at the chapters of John, how is it that we're only in chapter 12 when we're down to just the last week of his life? Well, there's a lot of attention paid to many of the details by john and you say well why is it different from the rest of the gospels i think it just simply had an impact on john uh, this is probably the last gospel that account that was written so the other ones have been written already and so by leading of the holy spirit john doesn't feel need to go back and detail all of those same things and so he spends a lot more time on the last week of jesus life than any of the other gospel writers and as we come to this chapter 12 sort of this halfway point of the book a little bit more than halfway it's a direct shift in how jesus is dealing with people up to this point a lot of jesus miracles, he would build a large crowd and then he would kind of whittle them down there would be a large crowd that would come see him because of his miracles and then he would teach something and they would kind of go away because he says hey if you're going to follow me you got to take up your cross you got to deny yourself. You have to give all things to me. And he said, who is the real and true followers? And then there was even times where he would work a miracle and the crowd would be in such a ruckus that some wanted to take him and make him king right then. Others wanted to take him and kill him right then. And Jesus would sort of drift off without their attention and he would go into the wilderness, let things kind of cool down and simmer down for a little while and then he would come back and minister again. Well, that aspect of Jesus' ministry is gone. And you're going to see that in our first verse this morning, in verse number 23. Notice what it says. This is a total shift in how Jesus has reacted or dealt with people up to this point. Look at verse 23 of John chapter number 12. It says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. We'll come back and read more of the text. But I want us to think about that Jesus says, The hour has come. He makes a big, bold statement about this time in his ministry. The the time is now, is what Jesus is saying. The hour has come that the Son of Man, we know he already refers to himself that way, the Messiah, the one who is a son of man, but a son of God, fully God, fully man, the Savior of the world, the hour has come for Him to act out. The hour has come for Him to change the world. The hour has come for Him to enact the very thing that would put the power of the gospel into the gospel, the very thing that would change the world, His death and sacrifice on the cross and His raising from the dead. Jesus now says, that hour is come. That is a big statement. And and, and really what we're going to do today as we look through this text and in our message today is we're just going to look at the responses and and how people responded to that particular moment, to that particular hour in history where Jesus says the hour is come. You've watched movies or read books or uh, sports highlights or something where there's this big kind of dooming moment. Or maybe if you've hosted a party or had a kid's birthday party and you see the kids coming down the driveway into your home and you're just kind of like, the hour is here. You know, just kind of, it's, a, it's a moment of doom. You know, is what it feels like sometimes in some ways. And there's these different things. <coughs> I think of a particular... Uh, scene or a particular moment in a, a Tolkien book where they're getting ready to go into battle and all these men are lining up and the enemy's opposing and they're coming in, they're getting ready to attack and going into Helm's Deep and they're getting ready to fight and all these arrows are flying and, and they're starting to just launch and this battle's about to begin and the king kind of sitting up looking over all of it. He says these words, he says, and so it begins. And that's in a way what Jesus is saying About this last moment of his life. Now think about, Jesus knows what's coming. He's a human messiah in the sense that he knows what's coming along. In in a way he can kind of sense from the people that are about to kill him and that are about to turn on him. But he's also a God Messiah. He is both. And so he knows in detail what he's about to suffer and what he's about to face. And so when he says the hour is come, he's not talking about fictional battle. He's not talking about something symbolic. He's not talking about a kid's birthday party, and it's not a pregame speech before the Super Bowl. This is the defining moment of the universe in which he knows the wrath of all mankind is going to be put on his shoulders, and he is going to bear the judgment of God for all men's sins. And so there's gravity when he says, the hour is here. And so what did they respond to? How, what, how were, did these people that were there, how did Jesus respond? How did God respond to these things? I want you to look, if you would, at verse number 27. We <coughs> finished up with verses 24 through 26 the end of our sermon last week. So I want you to see in verse number 27, how is it responded to this hour? Jesus speaks again about the particular hour that has come. Look at what it says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. So he says there's an hour that's come. When we're human, sometimes we just respond when a moment comes that way. But Jesus says the moment has come and I have come here for this moment. He's not responding in reaction. He's not making it up. On the go. And I'm glad he didn't come with a with a mindset to just, I'll just try to redeem people from their sins. He came with a plan, and he says, I have come for this cause into this hour. Look at verse 28. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people therefore that stood by and heard it, said that it thundered, and others said, An angel spake to him jesus answered and said this voice came not because of me but for your sakes now is the judgment of this world now shall the prince of this world be cast out and i if i be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me this he said signifying what death he should die the people answered him we have heard out of the law that christ abideth forever and how, sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. And while, he, while ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed. And notice this. And did, and did hide himself from them. Notice he's saying, for just this moment, he's away from them. But how are they going to respond? Look like at verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So you kind of imagine Jesus tells them this big thing. Walk in the light while you have light. I am the light of the world. He's already told them that. Respond now before darkness moves in over your heart and you don't respond to the light. And it's almost as though John kind of gives us a little bit of an aside. He kind of sets aside for a moment to show us their reaction. So these people that have laid down their coats before Him, that have watched these miracles, that have listened to His teaching, it's sort of another defining moment for them. And what does it say about them? But though, they had, uh, though He had done so many miracles before them, <clears throat> yet they believed not on Him. That the saying of Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, might be fulfilled. Which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore could not, they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, notice this: among the chief rulers also many believed on him. So now you have some that did not believe, and then you have some that do believe. But notice what they acted out visibly. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word this morning. Lord, we come to this passage in which You say, That this is a very important hour. That the hour has come, the time has come, and the redemption of man is about to begin. And we pray that we would see it and that we would understand it and that it would weigh uh, heavy. That it would have great gravity on our hearts and how we live and how we act and what we do in this world. And we pray that you would teach us from it. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. And so we have seen Jesus sort of building to this moment, and he says the hour is come. Now, he is not saying physically 60 minutes are here. These 60 minutes uh, that are going to tick away, 60 seconds in each minute are going to tick away, and when that hour is done, it's going to be done. He's saying this moment is here. This time has come. We have built to it all, and there's so much pointing to that at this point. If you think about all that we've seen in chapter number 12. You see these people laying down their coats before him, ushering him in as the king, and it sort of points to the prophetic uh, speaking. There is a king that is coming, and he's going to come. He's going to be riding on a donkey. It's just more and more proof that Jesus has come and that Jesus is the Messiah. We even see another one. Remember last week we said that it said that the Greeks came seeking for him and said, sir, we would see Jesus. Even that sort of points to the fact that Jesus' messianic ministry, his ministry as a Messiah, is kind of coming to a head because now all the world is coming and interested in him, not just the Jewish people. Remember we just read, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He says, I came to the world to save the world. He's saying, all men are going to come to me. And it sort of points that now not just the Jewish people are coming to him, but the Greeks are coming to him. And so all of this is building and building and building. His miracles have built to sort of a pinnacle moment, raising Lazarus from the dead. His teaching has sort of come to a pinnacle moment in which he says, you must follow me. His relationships with his disciples have grown to this point. His relationship with the Pharisees have come to a place where they're trying to kill him. His relationship with those around him in his community. The Jews want to make him king. The Greeks want to learn about him. Who is this man? His fame is spreading abroad. And so Jesus' ministry is building and building and building. (coughs) Excuse me. I've got a frog back there or something for So he has been building to this point of his ministry. And what does he draw our attention to? He says, this hour has come. And then this morning, I want you to think there was four responses, if you want to look at it that way. There were four responses to this particular moment of Jesus' ministry. You think about... um, the great biographies or the great stories of people throughout history, and it sort of builds to a moment that they were sort of made for. If you read the biography of the story of Winston Churchill, he did a whole lot of different things before he ever came to World War II, but World War II is sort of his crowning moment. It's what you read the most about. You think about uh, different leaders from our country, and you read their biography, and they may have worked their way through Uh, a farm or some uh, hard life and they made their way into the public eye and then they're elected to the presidential office or uh, chosen for the Supreme Court or they've invented something about Thomas Edison all his failures and you read his biography or watch a documentary on him, all his failures and all his things and it builds and then it kind of comes to a place where finally he gets some things right and things start to sort of take off for him. And so when you think about people, typically we don't talk about their culminating moment being their death. But for Jesus, that's exactly what we find. It is all pointed to his death on the cross. And why is that? It is because of the weight, it is because of the action that the cross carried out in our redemption. And so, in the gravity of this moment, we find four responses to this hour and I want to talk about them this morning if you want to jot them down as we go through or underline uh, the name of the person that's there you'll find it there in the scripture but here's the first one we find in verse number 27 what was Jesus response to this hour we'll start with the one who uh, who kind of gave us the hour and signified it in the moment anyway what was Jesus response to this big hour of his ministry look at verse number 27 now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? When you read that, it's kind of like, is there an opening in the uh, deity of Christ? Is he, is he afraid of what is to come? Is he nervous? Now, the word they're troubled, it doesn't mean he's sitting there biting his nails, or he's uh, pulling on his skin, or he's shaking in fear. It means he is revolted. It means he is turned away. He is In a way, he is in anguish thinking about the moment that is to come. And his response to this moment, there's a lot of things carried here. Jesus knows the sorrow that sin has caused in this world. Jesus knows the sorrow and the pain and the destruction that sin has brought to the human race who were created to glorify God as nothing else could but ruined in sin. He now looks to this hour and says, I, am, I know the weight of what is about to happen thinking about the gravity of the judgment of mankind poured out on his shoulders, poured out on his life, all the sins of all men. He's probably thinking in a way about his relationship with his father. For the first time in his life, now Jesus did not become a sinner on the cross, but he bore the weight of the sins of every man. And in that weight of those sins, he also bore a a separation from his father for those moments. And his father had to turn and look away from his presence and his gaze as his son drew in the weight of the sins of every man. And so you can see that his heart would be troubled. But notice it doesn't just say, now is my soul troubled. Notice what else it says, the way he asks. he says, and what shall I ask? <clears throat> Father, save me from this hour? I think that's an appropriate kind of inflection a way to read that he's not saying i would ask you to relieve me from this hour he does say father let this cup pass from me is jesus really literally saying to god god i don't know if you have another plan out there father but could you save me from this i don't believe that jesus is doing that because he's omniscient omnipotent god he knows this is what's going to be carried out but it does show the weight and gravity of the moment when he says if, if it were up to the physical man, if it's up to my physical body, I'd say, hey, let's, let's move on from this. Nevertheless, notice what it says at the end of the verse. But for this cause came I unto this hour. He says, I know there will be anguish. I know there will be pain. I know there will be torment, but it's why I am here. Have you ever had a big, bad circumstance or moment in your life that you knew was coming? Sometimes it's better to not know that something is coming because you don't live with that dread for all of that time. It'd be like if somebody, you know, strapped you to the train tracks, right? You see the old Western movie where you're, chained to the train tracks, you know eventually the train's coming, you may hear the horn a mile and a half, two miles away, so you know that doom is coming. But far more than that, Jesus sees in front of him the danger and the dread and the torment of the sins of the world coming upon him like a freight train, if you would picture it that way, and he knows, I am here to absorb this. I am here to bear it. I am not here to be set free. I'm not here to find a way to escape. I'm not here to find the trap door. Nobody's going to come and clip the chains and rescue me. I am here to take it all. And Jesus, knowing that, look at verse 28. says, Father, glorify thy name. So what was Jesus' response to this hour? You could say his response was one of anguish, but I think we can phrase it in an even better way. It was submission to anguish. When Jesus looked and saw what was coming, He didn't just think about the pain. He didn't just think about the awful place of the cross. He didn't just think about the dread or the humiliation or the spitting or the slapping or the crucifixion itself. He thought of two things. He thought of the anguish, but He thought of His submission and obedience to that anguish. Think about how impactful that should be in our own lives. If Jesus Christ could look and see the weight of the sins of all men and the judgment and the wrath of the Almighty God of the universe coming toward Him and in that moment of anguish say, I still give myself for this cause. What should our response be when God calls us to our uncomfortable moments of life? when God may not let us see it coming months or weeks or even days or hours down the road, but when a problem, when a trial, when a moment of suffering, when something bad comes into our lives, when a temptation of sin comes our way, and inside we are tormented in a way, battling back and forth between what the flesh wants and the spirit wants, what should our response be. is there going to be problem? Is there going to be suffering? Is it going to be uncomfortable? Sure. What should our response be, though? Submission and obedience to that anguish and to that trouble. It doesn't mean that we lay back and say, you know, Lord, give me you know, polio and boils and all the horrible things that you could give me possibly so that you can be glorified. I want to have the most miserable life I can possibly have. No, that's not His point, because Jesus has borne our sin, and He's uh, borne our anguish for those sins, though it means that we can stand before God in whatever He does bring. It is far less than we deserve. It is only for our good, pointing toward His glory, and so I can humbly and willfully submit to His will and accept whatever the outcome may be. Jesus Christ, looking toward the cross, lays himself down before the Father and all the world and says, Father, be glorified. And what should our response be in our lives? When something's uncomfortable, when we have a struggle, when there is a burden of life on your heart, when there is a relationship, problem within a family it is not that we try to fix it all on our own or complain our way out of it or uh, you know really bear down and and dig down and say God even save me from this turmoil notice God Jesus doesn't pray that saying God free me from this or I'm going to fix it myself he being God he could have done whatever he wanted to do but he doesn't do that he asks for his presence in those moments and he says Now is my soul troubled. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, for this cause I have come. Father, glorify thy name. How do we respond to the suffering and problems of life? Is it anguish, which it can be, or is there a submission to that anguish in that God knows what's best? God will eventually, and here's the wonderful promise. I spoke about promises in our Sunday school classes in different places and Bible classes this morning, here's a wonderful promise is that one day God will set us free from all of those problems, from all of those trials. But in that moment, it may be what he has for us. I have this uh, little thing that my dad got for uh, for myself, and then he got it for my brothers as well. And on the inside, he had this Inscribed, And it says, it means more to me now, of course, than it had before. On the inside of it says, My dear sons, may God always protect you and give you strength. And I hadn't thought a whole lot about that. You know, that's just one of those phrases. It's just there and it's different things. It has a couple markings on it and a stone to it and different things with it. But you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, may God save you from all pain and discomfort. It doesn't say, may God give you great success and lots of money. It says... May God give you strength and may God protect you from whatever you need to be protected from and for whatever you need strength to bear. May God be with you in those trials and in those problems and situations. And Jesus gives us an example of how we should respond to those moments. And it is with submission and obedience to whatever he has for our lives. The second response is from the Father himself. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, Father, glorify thy name. And then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered and others said an angel spake unto him. So what is God's response to this? What is the Father's response to his son's prayer in this way jesus response to the moment was submission god responds by speaking of jesus and pointing to the glory of christ now god the father throughout the gospels spoke three times at least that we have recorded he spoke three times audibly what what were they we just had one what was the other ones somebody say you can holler it out we can participate was it baptism, all right, that was the first one. He he spoke audibly when Jesus was baptized. What was the other one? When he was transfigured, when he was kind of shown in his glorified body before those few disciples. And now again, as he's about to enter his death, you say, well, that's neat. What are those three things? How do they sort of tie together? And there's a couple ways that you could uh, kind of look to that. You could say, well, his baptism, that was sort of an introductory moment, a good moment. And then you have his transfiguration, that was a great moment. And then you have his death, and that's sort of a sad moment. You could say that it was kind of in in an order of time or uh, chronology, that his baptism was the beginning, his transfiguration was the middle, and then now his death is sort of at the end. But there's more that ties those three things together than meets the eye at first. All three of those moments were Jesus having his true identity revealed. There was those, in those three moments, there was no more clear moment of Jesus as God in his ministry than when he is baptized into that ministry, saying, signifying, this is, yes, this is the beginning. This is my son. Then when he comes to the Mount of Transfiguration, he is in his glorified body, and he's saying to his, those disciples that were around, this is God. And now he's coming to his death, and God speaks again, signifying who he realized. He says, this is my sacrifice. So he says, this is my son, this is God, and this is my sacrifice. And it should blow us away that, Jesus, that God draws attention to the fact that he sent his son, who was God, to be sacrificed. And so in this moment, what does God the Father tell us? What does He want us to notice about these things? He wants us to see the unswerving obedience and submission of His Son to the Father and how they glorify each other. How is it that someone is glorified, if you think about it that way? Or how could the Son bring glory to the Father? How could the Father bring glory to the Son? You think about in our in a physical relationship between a father and a child. What is a way that a child could bring glory to the father? Now, most children aren't going to be able to have the money to purchase any great thing of note to give to the father. It's not that way. Most children aren't going to have some some sort of clout in this world, uh, you know, to be able to draw a press conference and say, my father is the greatest father. You know, we maybe we'll get a card or a T-shirt that says, World's greatest dad. Then we just look narcissistic when we wear those out in public and different things. Well, what is a way that a child could bring glory to the father? You think if you sent out one of your children and they were going to go out (coughs) one evening and they're going to go with friends and you say, hey, you can go with friends tonight, but here's a set of rules. (coughs) Here's where I have your best intention. So when you go out, you were going to say you can't go to this place, but you can go here. You can't go here. You can do these things, but you can't do these things. You, you can go see this, but you can't go look at these things. You can't go to this place. You can go do these things, but you can't other things. You can't do drugs. I don't want you to smoke. I don't want you to go out and get drunk. I don't want you to do all these different things. So I want you to stay where you should be. I want you to do what you're supposed to do. I want you to be around who you're supposed to be. And I want you to be home by 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, for the kids in this room, by 7.30. You should be home <laughs> What is a way that that child could honor? Now, what if that child, what if that son or daughter goes out, and they go to all the places that they were told not to go, and they do all the things they were told not to do, and they show up at one in the morning and walk in the door as though nothing had happened? Does that bring any sort of honor to the word of the father? That was said. No, and it may not be the fault of the father himself everyone makes their own choices but what would bring more honor and glory is if when that student that child goes out and they're say hey friends say hey let's go to this place no i i cannot go there i told my parent i wouldn't and say, "Well, i'm going to do let's go do these things no i i can't go there if you're going to do these things because they said i'm not going i told i'm not promised i'm not going to do those things oh great we're nice just getting started let's go do these things and let's go here. No, I have to go home. I have to be home by 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock, whatever it may be. And we set it up, and they're home on time. Well, what does that say that that child thinks about the father? It means that the child glorifies. It means that the child thinks something great of the word of the father. Even at their own cost, they may lose some prestige. They may lose popularity points. They may lose some what they think in their mind physical, temporal pleasure. But in that moment, what is more important is that they glorify the word of their father because of how they think about their father. And we see the example of Christ who says, I will bring honor to my father through obedience. And I wonder this morning, do we bring honor to our father by clear, purposeful obedience to his word? And I wonder, we would... We would kind of scowl at a teenager who disrespected their parents' words it said, ah, I you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be in this place at this time. I'm not going to be home on time. I'm not going to do these different things. We would kind of scowl at that. Yet in our own lives, the Bible says, you think of a command that you may struggle with in your life. The Bible says not to have bitterness and strife between each other. The Bible says to love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. The Bible says that by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one toward another. The Bible says that we focus on living holy, content lives, but we sometimes look at the Father and say, I know that's important, but so is this teenager could have an excuse and say, well, I'm home at midnight because what you didn't know is that this didn't even start until 1030. So there's no way I could get home by midnight. And sometimes we look at the father and say, well, God, we know you said this in your word, but you didn't really understand my situation when you wrote that. And we disrespect the father's word by disobeying his command. And no matter our age, no matter our status, no matter our number of years we've been saved, no matter what we do in this church, no matter what our ministry is, none of those things really build credit for us where we get to ignore the Word of God. If we're 80 and we ignore the Word of God, it's a sin. If we're 8 and we ignore the Word of God, it is a sin. And you say, well, I'm not into all these different things. What sins do we commit in our minds? What sins do we commit in our hearts? What thoughts do we have against other people? How much do I really glorify my Father? In this moment that Jesus is going to point to through His death on the cross, even in that moment, He says, I submit, I glorify my Father, and we should as well. Let's look at the second two very quickly this morning, not as... Long as the first two. But I want you to notice the third response. And if you want to write down, we had Jesus' response. We had God the Father's response. And now, we'll say it this way. The spiritual world's response to this hour. And you'll find it in verse 31 and 32. It says in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. And he says, Why did it come for your sakes? Well, some things are about to happen because of Jesus' Death on the cross. Verse 1 says, Now is the judgment of this world. That's the first thing. There's some things here that, ways that the spiritual world is going to respond. Now is the judgment of this world. That's number one. The second thing, Now is the prince of this world be cast out. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Here's the third thing, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth. So Jesus is going to be lifted up and signifying the death that he would die. And then number four, I will draw all men unto me. And so Jesus says, here's what the cross is going to do. It's going to set a dividing line of judgment for all the world. Now there is a razor-thin line, and you're going to land on one side or the other. There's no gray road in between. What do you believe about Jesus? Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He's going to bind Satan. Satan no longer has preeminent power over souls of men on this earth. There is freedom. There is a way to escape. What is that way to escape? It is by Jesus being lifted up from the earth physically on the cross. And when he did did that, he can now draw all men to himself. And I am thankful that the spiritual world's response to this was under God's control. Now is the judgment of the world. I want us to think about that just for a moment. When Jesus died on the cross, I said a second ago, it set a dividing line. This you say, there's this rug that's up here, and if you, where you're going to be on the platform, you can kind of be on that side of the rug, on this side of the rug, or on the rug. Well, it doesn't work that way with our spiritual lives. You are for Jesus and in Jesus, or you are against Jesus to be judged by Jesus. There's no kind of halfway middle ground. There's no apathetic heart toward Christ. The same way that in this story, eventually, everyone's going to land on a side. There's going to be these ones that said, oh, we're not sure what we think about Jesus, we're not sure if we believe, and they're eventually going to cry, kill him. The Pharisees are going to, Help enact all these things to put him on the cross. The ladies that were going to come to his tomb, they firmly believe in Christ. And then when he's risen from the dead, his disciples are fully going to trust in him, and you land on one side or the other. Sometimes that doesn't make a lot, of, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us because we're Christians. We believe that, of course. Now I'm on the right side. But how does this affect how you look at other people? Let that sink in for a moment. Everyone you know in this world lands on one side or the other. It doesn't matter how nice the neighbor is across the street. It doesn't matter what they have done for you. It doesn't matter what the businessman that you sit beside at work. It doesn't matter how kind and cordial he is, how respectful he is. Though the, those are all good qualities. It doesn't matter how bad the person is. It doesn't matter what the person said to you when you were in line at Walmart or the store. It doesn't matter what they said to you when you bumped into them on the street. It doesn't matter how demeaning they are to you as a person or as a co-worker or as uh, an acquaintance. It doesn't matter how wicked or evil. They're going to land on one side or the other. And our job in this world is to make disciples for Christ through one side or the other. And so it's easy in our minds to really put out of our heads, well, so-and-so across the street, I'm not sure if they're safe, but they're a really good person. Or, I work with so-and-so, and man, they are awful to me. And we think about them based on how they have reacted to us. Now watch this, when in reality we should be reacting, or we should be looking at them by how they have reacted to God. And we kind of place ourselves in the position of God by saying, I'm going to judge what kind of person you are based on how you treat me. Can you imagine one day standing before God and saying, I gave the gospel in an effective, relentless, strong way to these people because they treated me really well. These, I did not give the gospel to as strong because they didn't give me the opportunity, honestly. They were so mean or they were so this or they were so that. You know, they caused a ruckus in, in my life and kind of caused problems. We look at people sometimes even within our own church body that way. Almost as though someone is more deserving of hearing Christ because they make my life easier compared to someone who... Eh, they may hear Christ, we may not see them again, but it doesn't really matter because they mistreat me. They make my life hard. Can you imagine? Jesus Christ says, I will draw all men to me. The ones that nailed his hands into the cross, the ones that whipped his back, the ones that smacked his face, the Pharisees that were deceitful and lied about him, the disciples that loved him, the women that he had ministered to and saved out of their sin. Jesus says, I'll draw all of them to me. What makes it okay in our minds to treat people differently and to see them any way other than saved or not? The ruler of this world, it says, is going to be cast out. He's going to be bound. And though sometimes we feel like he is winning, though sometimes we feel like he has the stronghold, and though sometimes we may look at somebody's life and say, there's no way they can be affected for Christ, this verse says he would be cast out. This verse says the gospel is stronger. These verses say Jesus has conquered the devil. And so when we look out in a defeated attitude, what does it say about our God? He's strong enough except for that person. He's strong enough, except that culture and society works this way. He's strong enough, except if that person would just, if they would just treat me, if if my life were different. But he says, it's very simple. Judgment's coming on the world. Satan has been bound. And if you'll lift me up, I will draw all men to me. He doesn't say, your, your job is to fix everyone and get everyone to come. Your job is to lift up Christ. And so this morning, I wonder, As we come to this moment in Scripture, what does your life do? Are we more focused on the person? Are we more focused on the circumstance that we're trying to minister into? Are we more focused on what's going on in our community? Are we more focused on what's going on in the people around our church? Or are we focused on lifting up Christ in love and in truth? And that brings us to the final response. And let's look at that, if you would. There were some people there that responded a certain way. Look at verse 37. But though He had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on Him. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, and that was a big deal. Some of these chief rulers, these same ones that were against Him at first, it says, also many believed on Him. We don't ever really hear about them again. It says, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now, there's a whole other direction we could go that someone here wanted to come to repentance of their awful sins, but the religious people around them affected them in a way that they wouldn't do it. We can infer that, think about that of our own minds. I wonder who we have kept from coming to Christ because of our judgment toward them. Look at verse 43. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And it's easy to point at them and say, well, they love the praise of men, so... But often, we create a culture of praising people instead of praising God. And that kind of culture brings people to want the praise of men more than they want the praise of God. And I wonder, in our families this morning, you're a parent, what do you want from your children more? Do you want them to earn your praise? or do you want them to earn God's praise? Your coworker, do you want them to impress you? Or do you want them to come to God? Your family member, are you seeking more to see their life change, to impress and, and, and give your approval? Or are we seeking God, a life that makes much of Christ brings many to him. Think about that. A life that makes much of Jesus can bring many to Him. But a life that makes much of self tends to just push others away. And so I wonder this morning, when Jesus came to this moment, when He came to the cross, in humble submission, He said, God, do what you need to do through me. And I wonder this morning, What moment are you in in life? You may not be about to come to a cross, most likely not, like Jesus did, not a physical one, but you may be coming to a crossroads. You may be coming to a moment in life which you could praise and glorify your God and draw others to Him, or you could make life about yourself. Our response should be, Jesus has come to change the world and I want to be a part of it. Think about this. Jesus knew what the hour was. Do we know what the hour is in our lives? Jesus knew what awaited him. And we know what awaits us. Jesus knew that death was right around the corner. And I wonder, do we really understand and believe that though we may live another 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, the truth is, Death is right around the corner. He said, "What a way to end a service on a nice, positive note." But the point is, we do what we can for Christ now. And I leave you with these words that Jesus says: "Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light." And so, this morning, as a church. May we pray, we have light for a little while longer. We should worship Christ and draw others to Him. Lord, we praise You for Your goodness and Your love. (coughs) Thinking about this, in a way it's a complex passage, in another way it's very simple. And I wonder this morning, if we really examined our own hearts, are we living more for self? Or are we living in service? Are we living more for our own glory or for God's glory? And I wonder this morning, if we would think about the fact that you have saved us and left us on this earth for a purpose. If we could not affect this world for you, I would think that when you saved us, you would just take us out of it. But the fact that you've left us here Means that you have a great purpose for us. May we, like Jesus, in submission, obey you regardless of circumstance, regardless of what people are like, regardless of what people act like, look like, say, or do. May we see people not as how have they impacted my life for good or bad, but may we see them as do they believe Christ? Or do they still have a need for the gospel in their heart? May we not live our lives so selfishly, but may we glorify you. We pray this in your precious name.